outside the box of religious obligation lies a road less travelled into the heart of the Father's affection. Slinging freedom all over the place, this is the God Journey. We've had quite a fall from grace, Kyle. Quite a fall from grace. Okay. Yeah, two days. In two days, we've gone from the Abraham Lincoln Museum and Library and that part of our history that is both painful and got some wonderful things in it by a man who risked everything to help hold our country together. Pretty amazing story. And I've been there before, but taking Sarah there was awesome. And yeah. then we drove yesterday down to Memphis, and now we're parked just outside Graceland. And though that sounds good, uh, it's actually Elvis Presley's home here in Memphis. So <laughs> we are going to check that out this afternoon. Why is it called Graceland, just out of curiosity? I have no idea. I haven't looked that up yet. Hopefully they'll tell us on tour today or something. Let us know. But that's that's what he named it, I guess. Okay. You know, I've got a little bit of an intersection with Elvis. I actually ushered one of his last concerts before he... Really? Yeah, they needed... Students at ORU, he was doing his concert there at the at the big uh, maybe center, which is the big civic center there. And so they wanted uh, some ushers. So, yeah, I'm not sure one of his final concerts. So, whoa. OK. All right. What was the dynamics like in the concert hall for an Elvis Presley show live? Well, this is a big, fat, drugged up Elvis. So it, it wasn't. Okay. It's this big, sweaty blob on stage. <laughs> And women running at him, throwing their underwear at him. And he was throwing scarves off every few minutes. And women who take the scarf, they're filled with sweat. Just throw them in their face. <gasps> Suck in all. Oh, my gosh. It was so. And I, I was ushering in the in the cheap seats, nosebleed section. And people were coming in going, how much did those people pay for their tickets? Pointing down to the people on the floor right in front of the stage. I yeah. said, 10 bucks. They said, what? I paid 10 bucks for my seat. I said, I know. They're all 10 bucks. The whole thing. Well, that's not good, dude. Don't bother Whoa. me. I'm just the usher. I'm just telling you where your seats are. Yeah. $10 was, to get a front row seat at an Elvis concert. Taylor Swift could learn something here, right? She could, considering <laughs> hers are probably 10000 um, Well, to try to get say, a front row seat VIP. Yeah, probably. But there's 600 just for a normal seat if you buy oh, it. Oh, I know. And then resell it for 8000 or something. It's just, yeah. Economics sure. are crazy. Ten bucks to see Fat Elvis sing some of his songs. I mean, he can still sing. We had a guy murdered in the parking lot that night. Well, not murdered. The police shot him. He was running at the building with a briefcase and wouldn't stop. So the police took him down right before the concert started. Oh my gosh! He was actually looking for Oral Roberts, not Elvis Presley. But <laughs> either way, they, they was there the a bomb in the briefcase? Uh, there was a cassette tape in the briefcase. Crazy guy, I guess, and. He wow. was running at a big building with a suitcase, looking like he was about to throw it. So they took him down, sadly. Yikes. Anyway, that's my contact with Elvis. So, Oh, gosh. Okay. So I'm intrigued to hear what you say about Graceland then. Yeah, we, we're, I have RV park right next door. We can just walk across and get in. And uh, we got an appointment this afternoon to go see what we can see. And, you know, and I think about Elvis, I'll be honest. And this may, I know some Elvis fans. We may have some uh, plus 70 Elvis fans in the audience. I have no idea. That guy's been dead a long, long time, 40 plus years. But man, what a waste of a gift. Because the guy, mm. guy had a voice and the guy had an ability to sing with passion. And he, he did sing some Christian music and Christian hymns. And it was powerful, powerful gift. And yet squandered, squandered in so many ways. And uh, so it's kind of a, 
sad, sad bit, I think, to go kind of sort out a little bit of his journey after sorting out Abraham Lincoln's. I was going to say, you've got two very different stories, right? Both both people had the opportunity to move into extraordinary positions of leadership and influence in the world around them. And yet one got taken out by the lure of the world and the other one was able to fight against it and able to lay down a legacy that was very foundational for our country. Yeah. And we got a good dose of Monday of how hated Abraham Lincoln was when he was elected. Man, the cartoons they made of him, this country really? boy from, oh my gosh, he was vilified, particularly by the South. Obviously, a lot of states yeah. seceded as soon as he was elected. But yeah, no one had any confidence that he was going to be a guy that could do his little country lawyer from Illinois and had been a congressman. And so, yeah, he goes out there to uh, great hostility, which they say didn't bother him, Bo bothered Mary a little bit. It didn't bother yeah. him. Anyway, enough of that oh. stuff. I'm Wayne Jacobson. And I'm Kyle Rice. And welcome to this edition of The God Journey. For this one from Memphis, uh, Tennessee, for me, and for Sheridan, Wyoming, for Kyle. So are you still heading east, or are you, is this your turnaround point? This is our turnaround point. This is our easternmost okay. point. We turn back toward Little Rock. We were actually going to come. To, Graceland was not on our schedule. Memphis wasn't. But we drew the lines. There was a road down to Arkansas that had a wildfire warning on it. And the other option was 10 minutes longer. But it took you to Memphis. And we thought, why not? We missed it last time we were out this way. So we've come to Memphis and had to Little Rock and then to Texas and then on the way home from there. So, so I'm assuming you're going to go and track down some good barbecue while you're in Memphis, Tennessee. Well, you know, I track good damn barbecue everywhere. So. <laughs> I know. I know. We but found St. Louis, Kansas good... City. Yeah. No, I know. We'll find something in Memphis, I'm sure. <laughs> but I cooked last night. So there we go. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Can't eat out little... every night. You have a mini smoker that you take with you? No, we don't smoke on the road. We buy smoked stuff. We stopped oh, okay. at a bakery and found a cinnamon roll. So I had chowed that down. Ooh, that was okay. lunch. Yeah, we're doing all right. Getting fat this trip. I'll soon be Elvis <laughs> Presley without the drugs. <laughs> oh, I was going to ask you, best thing you heard this week? Yeah, it's from Shakespeare. How about Ooh, that? Okay. Wow, a quote from Shakespeare. A friend of mine in St. Louis sitting down having lunch with him. He said, there's nothing more confining than the prison we don't know we're in. Hmm. There's nothing more confining than the prison we don't know we're in. And I've been in a few of those, right? Hmm. I've been in... Uh, I've been in a religious system that uh, I had no idea how imprisoning it was until light began to creep through the bars. Uh, Sarah's, uh, her trauma, a prison, she had no idea two years ago that she's in a prison. She has the effects of it, but not the reality yet. And so, yeah, there's nothing more confining than the prison we don't know we're in. And we don't know why we struggle and we don't know why we're hurting and we don't, but we've got a belief system or we've got a, a, a mentality or a connection to things that are actually keeping us captive and not liberating us to the life God wants to give us, which may account for why most of our prayers are misplaced and misdirected and God's not answering them because we're actually praying for the prison to get better. And God's <laughs> saying, no, let's, let's get you out of there and into something more alive and real. I think that's the interesting thing about the the prison that we don't know we're in. Often they're of our own design or our own making, right? Like that there's something that we've created for our own safety or our own survival. And then all of a sudden they they aren't working. All of a sudden life 
is not working out the way that we thought it was going to, or as smoothly as we thought it was going to. And we've, like you said, the light starts to shine through the bars a little bit. And we're like, Ooh, Oh my gosh. Like how long have I been sitting in this prison? And why does this prison have my signature on it in some way? Like what's going on here? Yeah, unfortunately, that, that's true. But, you know, we're so easily captivated by lies, right? So that that's one way we get sucked into it. And the other way, like Sarah's coping mechanisms, they they they, yeah. they become survivalist when you're when you're developing them, they help the brain survives a horrible thing happening to it. But then when the coping mechanisms hang on past the threat, then they become the prison that God needs to liberate us from or God gets to liberate us from. Hmm. How about you? Well, I actually, I was going to go one direction, but I decided I, to share a conversation I got into with my daughter, Elle, this morning as we were on our way to her first day of preschool. Elle often and appears in The Best Thing I Heard This Week. She, yeah, she's got some good ones. So we were, we were driving down the road and she said, Daddy, you're the best daddy ever. But then she followed it with this statement. She said, as long as you continue to do good things and do what I want, you're the best daddy ever. I was like, oh, it's like, hold on, let's put the brakes on that. And we went into a con that launched Ouch. us into a yeah, yeah, it was very I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, and so we got into a conversation about about valuing each other, not for what we do, but valuing each other for who the other person is and how, yes, yeah, sometimes daddy gets you know, frustrated or daddy gets sad when she doesn't make a, a wise choice or a kind choice, but that has nothing to do with my love for her. And that she's still the best daughter ever, whether she's having a breakdown and really struggling, or if she's doing exactly what daddy's asking her to do, or we're playing together, or we're having a great time. So I, I don't know if it sank in or not, but it was just this like, okay, we're, we got to step in and we're going to change up this conversation because daddy being the best daddy as long as he continues to do what i want to do good things then we've got we've got a little bit of a difference in our conversation system here conditional love gets built into the framework so easily doesn't it so like so easily i just got slapped with it by my three and a half year old i was like oh my gosh like what the heck oh man that's gotta be that's gotta be something i it had me questioning do, am I teaching her that? Is that something that my actions and the way that I'm interacting with her is, is that where she's learning that? Is she hearing that from somewhere else? Like where, or is that just something that she is, that's just through the, the rationale of a three and a half year old? I don't know. I don't know. Having raised two kids and watched three grandkids grow up. I think selfishness is a pretty naturally inbuilt system to <laughs> our broken humanity, unfortunately. And yeah. it's, I often gets applied to God too, doesn't it? God, I love you as long as you answer my prayers, keep my path the way I want my path, you know, then we can all be buddies. And, and that's the expectation of God for too many people. And then when things go sideways, the doubt is, does God love me? Does God even exist? Is God even there? Man, I had this accident. He didn't heal me faster than Joe Blow over there who wasn't praying got healed. And so, man, it makes me really wonder whether God even exists. And it, it's kind of the, the same root of that is right there. I will yeah. love you as long as you're good to me and you do. And they hear God is good. So, but if God's trying to pull you out of a prison you're in, it may not look good to you when the moment you're going through it. And that's why yeah. trusting God has to just be bigger. I love him for who he is. 
I love mm-hmm. him that he does know best. And when he when he defies my expectations, then I learn to lose my expectations, not lose my relationship with God. But too many people have traded one for the other, sadly. I like the imagery that you said about wanting to make our prisons better. You know, that our prayers are trying to glamorize our prisons, right? Like, it's like, oh, God, please give me a disco ball for inside my prison. And God's like, no, the disc, the party's out here. Like, this is where you need to come. And I want to bring you out here instead of giving you a illusion of a party inside your own prison. That's what we're praying for oftentimes is illusions. I like that word. We're praying that I sustain my illusion here so I don't lose it when being disillusioned is one of the greatest things that we get to experience. It's painful. It's almost always painful, but not to live by illusions kind of mid kind of keeps the pain somewhat contained. If I keep Mm -hmm. living by illusion, the pain's going to keep following me wherever I go. And so if I can lose the illusion, see God as he really is, see myself as I really am, and that may all be painful for a season, but it's yeah. going to draw you into better space that'll be healthy and more long-term. It's interesting, though, I was in a conversation with a person the other day, and we were talking about some areas of their life that they're navigating, and they have this repeated pattern that they keep finding themselves in, and it's very painful, and they're wondering, what's wrong with me? Why, why do I keep finding myself here? Am I just a bad person, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of went down that whole road. And it was like, I wanted to say, you know, that you're experiencing, you're going to experience pain one one way or the other. You can continue with the pain that you're familiar with, that you keep finding yourself in repeatedly over and over and over again, or you can go through the growing pains that it's going to that's required in order to step into the wholehearted life that you're asked you're actually asking for. But you know which which direction do you want to go? And that's often I find people tend to choose the pain that they're familiar with, even though it's it's still according to them very painful. At least they've started to figure out how to anesthetize themselves to it or or distract themselves from it. Yeah, that's that's a great analogy, just whether we're going to take the long term solution, which is going to be healing and maybe short term pain, a longer term gain. But that selfishness that we're born with seems to always tend toward I'd rather stick with the pain I know than the pain I don't know. I, I, I like you said, I know how to manage this. So I'm a good, but I, I'm not sure I can manage that. Or like we talk about now, Sarah and I have people with trauma when they kind of sense there might be trauma in their life. Or we've talked about this before that there's a big black hole or a bunker over here. And I keep it just out of eye range. I, I walk around it. I, yeah, I, I don't know if I fall in there or go in there, if I'll ever get out. And that's a, that's a legitimate fear people have. They, they really, yeah. I don't want to explore that because I may not find my way out of that. At least I can exist here when wholeheartedness lies through there. It's through, the, it's through okay, what is this black hole? And, and it, some of it's illusionary, some of it's real and finding out which it is and how God draws us through it. And that's why I call it a noble journey, man. I think it is. I think the noble journey of taking on the the core things in our heart that deter us from wholehearted living. Mm. And it may be trauma-based, maybe sin-based, maybe whatever. That's the courageous journey. And yeah. maybe that's the narrow road. Few there be who find it because they're scared of where that leads. And I think that's a great point, though, in regards to 
not being basically terrified of whether or not they're going to be able to get out because they see and i i even in my own life i saw the internal black hole the abyss that was going on inside and i knew that in my own strength i did not have what it took to get out of there that if i went there i would be undone if i was by myself and that's where a lot of the fear really was residing was father if you do not go there with me i will be stuck in there i will continue to despair and i don't know if i'll make it out alive because i knew i could look at that and know that i didn't have enough strength to make it out that i couldn't will myself out of there if i actually went there and actually took the time to take the courageous journey and step into that which is true we are powerless against those things that's why we talk about sinus trauma or real capital t trauma yeah we're we are going to be powerless to switch from survival living and whatever distractions indulgence medication we can find or move toward wholeheartedness that i can't control i can't control that journey i don't have it in me to get to the solution so i've got to trust that jesus is the way not just the way to heaven he's the way through the darkness and into the light he's the way out of the prison and into the party and into the freedom that he wants to give us and that's that's why oftentimes when we're in the darkness what god's wanting us to know is you are loved you're safe with me i've got you we can go down this road together i'm not asking you to go down it alone i'll hold your hand i'll go with you i've already done everything i can to make this work for you but we haven't been given a god like that the god we've been given in religion yeah. is way too small for those things it's just a nice little sermon and a nice little song service and we go home and live the best we can and somehow that satisfied people hmm. I got an email this week, though, and I thought I'd read a little bit of it to you. It yeah. wasn't to me personally. It was a mass email. I don't okay. know. People shouldn't send me this stuff. It's too much fodder for uh, the podcast. But here's what it said. Are you upset about all the hate directed at Christians? Tired of the endless stream of atheist, agnostic, woke entertainment pouring out of Hollywood? Had enough of academia and the lamestream media calling Christians racist, homophobes, intolerant, and backward because we believe in gospel values? If that describes you, then support the change you want to see. Doesn't matter if your politics are more left or right. Now he's going to take in everybody. Doesn't matter. You know, the Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, all need to follow and proclaim Jesus as Lord by watching these movies. And this whole ad for he's got a new movie, but he's recommending some of the other Christian ones that are out right now. My heart hurts from the very beginning because I have friends who really live in the hatred of the world, whether it's Hillary Clinton talking about the deplorables or, you know, whatever. They, they live in the absolute hatred and anger of this element in our culture, which is more of a secular approach, right? Mm. And we Christians who particularly grew up in conservative Christian America, who feel like everything should go our way, we're, we're the primary... I mean, we have the truth after all, so society should do what we want. And so everything that happens in the culture in the last 50 years, the culture war season has gone against us and really feel that hatred from the media, which may be illusionary and may, may also be a prison of our own making. As I live in the world, I don't find that degree of hatred. Is the, is the mass media against the truth of the gospel? Of course it is. Why would we expect other than that? Hmm. Does that cultivate into hatred because of our values? No. 
It cultivates the hatred because we're trying to shove our values down a culture that doesn't want them. Mm. And it doesn't believe in the, we just got done talking about, you can't change without him. Yeah. It just looks normal, natural way to live. So we've got a world that do, doing what it does because it appears natural. It appears what it needs to do. We're telling them you should live to God's values without God, to which mm. they rebel and get angry. Why wouldn't they? You're compelling them to something. But I find as we travel around, talk to people in RV parks, whatever, people find out we're Christian. I, my first response, oh, I hate you Christians. I, I, I don't. I, some people have angst about particularly the political slant of Christianity today, for sure. Yeah. But to that translating to people who love God and want to walk in his life and glory and hit it in the world, it misses that. Sarah and I were listening to a podcast the other day, and it was about a book called Trauma-Informed Evangelism. That was the book they were talking about, was the authors. One's a friend of mine, actually, Elaine Heath. Um, I was on a podcast with her a few years ago. And it's it, one of the words they began to use in the podcast I'd never heard before, and that was Christian supremacy. Ooh. You ever heard that term? No. Christian <laughs> supremacy? Yeah. Okay. And it, hits, it hits me in an interesting way. One, I do think the life of Jesus is supreme. I think the, the work of, the, of redemption in the world is that Jesus would have the supremacy, as Colossians 1 talks about, in all things. So I, I believe in the supremacy of Christ. Christian supremacy, though, as they defined it, was viewing Christianity as an empire that we're going to bring back, we're going to bring the kingdom through our political power. Hmm. And that is, and having that sense of empire, which is because we're right, and I, I say that advisedly because we we talk a lot about, although Jesus is truth, and everything Jesus says is true, there's a lot in Christianity that's not following Jesus, deeply flawed. Yeah. So when you try and put Christianity, it's going to, whether it's attacking the seven mountain culture things, whether it's the political process, we got to fight for our rights against the whole idea of Christian supremacy reeks with the stench of human sweat mm. and not the, uh, not the marvelous aroma of father's fragrance. And that's what disturbs me for sure. I just, when I think about that, I honestly, when, when I first heard you say that Christian supremacy, the very first thing that my mind went to is white supremacy. That was the very uh, like KKK Ku Klux. I mean, that's the, that's the first place my brain went when you said that I was like, Whoa, wait, hold on a second. Where are we going with this? And yet again, I, I think you're right. I think there's this, this force that's trying to take place in under the effort of humanity versus following okay where is father moving here what does that look like what because i would agree wayne the the conversations that i get into with people on a regular basis that have no idea what my political background is what my spiritual beliefs are have no idea about my background and yet I get into some really beautiful powerful conversations with young people about life and I don't know, it just, there's, there's something about this, this forced thing 
that is trying to shove an agenda, another agenda, and yet then we're really angry when somebody else is doing the same thing back to us. We're like, oh, okay, well, we're now we need to really go to war because somebody's trying to do the exact same thing that we just got done doing to them. Exactly. And yet, and yet we're in the we have the moral high ground, and so we are justified in the way that we're treating them versus the way they're treating us. And I know that people that have trouble with the term Christian supremacy also have trouble with the term white supremacy, because it, it points to something going on in our culture that they don't want to see. They want yeah. to say, I'm colorblind. I don't see it. But even when we get to Christian supremacy and hearken back to what America was in its history and the nostalgia of it was a better day when it was racist, it was restricting of other people's freedoms in the culture it did demand conformity something that roger williams back in the massachusetts bay colony says is a lose-lose for christianity if christianity is forced on anyone it ceases to be christianity if christian mm. morals are forced on anyone you're only going to alienate them from the god you want them to know that really in fact the kingdom is always an invitation it's never compulsion you can't force it on somebody and the attempt to do so disfigures it and that's the point of another book that somebody sent me sent me a, a picture of the cover of this book it's called american idolatry and honestly i'll put a link to it on the podcast i don't remember the author as i'm sitting here i don't have access to it without uh, uh looking through a few things but it's american idolatry and he, the point of it and he talks about white christian nationalism so he he takes the whole thing in one long term and talks okay. about how our society was completely structured from the founders early days to benefit white Protestant people. And some of those systems still are engaged today. And many yeah. of them, I've got friends who can't see it, but he sent me this book saying, this is why people hate you. And I'm going, okay, well, I hate that people hate me, but it is. I mean, some of that from language of healing was not a popular yeah. book among some of my audience. Some, some, it was, some were willing to take a hard look and go, man, am I, am I just enjoying the benefits I get as a white Christian in America? Or am I willing to look at other groups that are marginalized by that and have compassion for them? And if they come to Christ, they come to him because he's engaging, not because we've taken the power of the culture back to our own hand. Let me just read you some of what he said. Here's the goal of this book, this American idolatry, is to make okay. clear that Christian nationalism a cultural framework asserting that all civic life in the United States should be organized according to a particular form of conservative Christianity, betrays the example set by Jesus in the gospel. Christian nationalism leads us to practice various forms of idolatry, revering a God or gods other than Jesus by trusting in them for our protection and provision. Hmm. That's a pretty direct hit right there. Yeah. We're looking for security in something other, and that leads to a host of would-be prophetic and political leaders who offer themselves for our protection. I will keep you safe. Follow mm -hmm. me. I will do. And if they're a bully, they're a bully, but they're a bully for us. So we don't, and I've had Christians tell me that if he's a bully, then he's my bully because he's pushing yeah. for things I want in the culture. And, and he goes on to say, what if the greatest threat to Christianity in the United States was never from outside sources? What if the greatest threat to Christianity in the United States came from within, a wolf in sheep's clothing, something familiar enough to evade detection so most would not even realize the threat? What if for many Americans, 
Christians. Confronting this threat, threat felt akin to opposing Christianity itself. Hmm. What if all along the greatest threat to Christianity in the United States was white Christian nationalism? Wow. And this is an academic guy. This is not some fly-by-night self-published book doing his own thing. This is a guy that's an yeah. academic, well-known, done some study in what Christian nationalism not only does to the nation, it's also what it does to Christianity. It changes mm. the nature of the gospel, changes the spirit in which Christians live and love in the world, to now Christians are fighting for their rights and demanding that culture serve them. The very opposite of Jesus saying, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Yeah. I came to find broken and hurting people, people lost in the darkness, and let them know they're loved and they're safe with my Father, so that they might well begin a journey out of their prison into wholeheartedness. Mm. But without Jesus being their companion in the darkness, without Jesus being an entreating figure, if he's waving a crusade flag and berating people who don't agree with him, if, he's, if he takes that posture in the world, then the gospel is pretty much eliminated. Hmm. Because now it's not, it's not a gift to the broken. It's a weapon of power in the hands of the strong. And I've watched that over 50 years. The bridge building stuff I did to what's happened in the last eight years, uh, 10, 12 years with uh, how Christian nationalism has surged, even among good friends of mine who yeah. now are prepping for war, arming themselves, taking self-defense classes, because they really feel like if you're going to be a passionate follower of Jesus, you've got to be, go to war for our rights in the culture. And yet he says, and when you talk about that, there are people that you'll just make angry because doggone it, we had a culture and we've lost it. And we've got to get it back for Jesus, or we've got to get to the top of the seven mountains so we can top down force the kingdom on people who don't want the kingdom. That should be as an absurd a notion as it sounds when I say it. It's completely absurd to say we could force the kingdom or Jesus demonstrated that by coming to force the kingdom. And yet so many people really connect with and adhere to the image of Jesus coming on the white horse with his robe dipped in the blood of his enemies, right? Like that's that's yeah. the imagery, that's the that's the push. And I Personally, I have connected with and resonated with that image of who he is. And yet the, the way that I see that often being lived out isn't out of the space of love and grace and compassion for the people around them. It just isn't. It is this force. I'm going to force my beliefs. I'm going to force these ideals onto people instead of I'm going to live out of this wholehearted space that Father is continuing to win me into. And I know that people who are living in out of the, the constructions and the systems of this world that come up lacking every single time, that wholehearted life is going to have a different flavor. I know it will. And I've seen it in the conversations that I get into with people every single day. I see those conversations coming up of, okay, hold on a second. I, I literally had a student come in the other day and I, I had a paper in one of my classes and the class was to evaluate their previous or current romantic relationship and evaluate it through the lens of, is this person a safe person? And I had a student come in 
that said, hey, I just wanted to let you know, I'm pretty sure that that paper that you had me write saved my marriage. Wow. And I was like, whoa, wait, wait, what? Like, what's going on here? And they went on to tell me a little bit about their story and what was going on. And the student, and I've, I've been very, I'm very intentional as a, a college instructor to leave them guessing. Like, if they want to know what my ideals are, or my background is great. But my, my intention is to get their minds working and to put those ideas and those thoughts of what does it look like to step into this more wholehearted life. And the student pauses and says, my experience of you tells me that you know a very loving higher power. And I just wanted to say thank you for following his direction because I'm fairly certain that there was some divine ordinance on this paper and the timing. Wow. And it was so like, there was no force. There was no prompt. There was no like, you have to write, like, give me the 15 biblical ways, you know, blah, 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 blah of living as a safe person. No, but, but everybody, no matter their background, they want to have a conversation of what does it mean to be a safe person? What are the characteristics of somebody that I can actually trust that, that has a level of care and compassion and deep seated desire to see me as a move into a more wholehearted space? Yeah, it's just really intriguing to me. So what do we say about our Christian brothers and sisters who raised similar to we are, we were, know the God that we know in some measure, and yet they feel like compulsion is a tool of the kingdom. Hmm. And, and they don't see, and this is what I wonder, I wonder if they don't see or have not experienced a love that's more inviting than morality is imposing, than, than, than imposing reality. That it's because it hasn't even worked among Christians who believe in imposing morality. They, they don't live yeah. to that morality either. And yeah. they have one of the conversations we got into this week was the idea that we talk about shame on particularly women and men who've been mm -hmm. sexually violated at young ages, the shame of that, where even yeah. our religious cultures chose to keep the shame on the victim by hiding the sexual abuse going on in their congregations. And that's not just Catholics, that's Southern Baptists, that's Pentecostals, that's Foursquare, that's all kinds of churches have had yeah. sexual impropriety go on. And the natural instinct is keep the shame off the institution, which obviously it's going yes. to inure to their demise if, the, if it gets out that they're broken and fallen. But they're yeah. willing to let shame rest on the victim instead of take the shame on themselves for the perpetrator in their midst. When Jesus comes and takes on the shame of us all, he takes the shame off the victim and off the perpetrator both. I want you to come. Why is that not more engaging than mm. the story of let's arm ourselves, let's get to the political thing, let's go to movies to prove how faithful we are to Jesus and that Jesus is a better. And I've got good, good friends who are on that other bandwagon. They are. And they look at me like I'm a three-headed monkey because they just can't figure out why I would even question those things. And I have to wonder, have you not known a love more powerful than your political ambitions or self-defense efforts or what? Do you not know a love more powerful, more alluring, more compelling than comp compulsion itself? And I will say that I'm going to go on a limb because I, I, I think this is true. The, the one thing I see 
in my brothers and sisters who get lost in some other kind of illusion about power and provision and protection in another human being or political system or whatever, two things seem to always spring up first in their heart. One is fear, mm. afraid of where this country's going, afraid of their place in it, afraid of the future. It's fear. And the other one is anger. Mm. Is I, I'm call me a deplorable or make some transgendered change in the bathroom at my daughter's high school or whatever. It's vengeance, anger and vengeance, or it's fear. And it yeah. seems like that that opens us up to the kinds of illusions that will make us feel more empowered against our fear or our anger instead of the journey, maybe the, the narrow road, the path that goes, I want to disarm your fear and anger. I, I don't, God's saying, I don't need it in the world. I don't need you to feel it. First of all, the whole society, I mean, we're, we understand what the end of the ages looks like. The, uh, Jesus trained his disciples not to be loved by the world around them. He aggressively let them know you will experience conflict. It, I'm yeah. bringing a sword and that conflict will not just go to the world. It will go to those who persecute you thinking they're doing God a favor. It will even separate fathers from sons and daughters mm -hmm. from fathers and families. Jesus said, it'll even go to that, but it's, you can take those passages and feed your anger and fear with them. Or you see how the tenderness of love will cause other people who are afraid and angry to hate you because you're yeah. not as angry as they are and you're not as fearful as they are. And you should be because they want more people on their side because they're trying to impose their way of life on the world. I think white Christian nationalism is a great term and his point that it, if we follow its dictates, we will live less like Christ in the world, even while we're in the prison of thinking we're advancing the kingdom in the world. That's, that's the conundrum here, isn't it? It is. And that's, I, I blatantly, and I don't, I, I don't even know if I want to admit this, but I, as we're talking, a line came to my mind from a incredibly cheesy chick flick that Jess and I were watching last night. Okay. And yet there, they were, we're like, gracious and you've got nothing to apologize for. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's this tension between these two individuals and one of the individuals, they're in this office place and they're, it's these two publishing companies that got merged together and they have two very different theories of how to do life. And so this one individual says to this guy that is, comes across as a jerk and she's like you're just an a-hole you're just you know i'd rather be known as a kind person than the a-hole in the office and his response is no i'm not an a-hole i'm feared and because i'm feared i'm effective and it was like oh like that because i'm feared i'm effective this is a parable for our times is it not Yes, like I, I sat there in the middle of this like super cheesy movie being like, oh my gosh, somebody just dropped a truth bomb through this show. And yeah. I don't even know if they realized it or not. Because it's true. You're going to negotiate yeah. the systems of the world to be feared is the best thing you can have. That yeah. will make people cower and do whatever you want. But if it's to be effective in the kingdom, it's the opposite of fear. Yeah. It's, I, that's what I just, I don't get Jesus saying to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would have swords. So yeah. 
It's not like we can't fight this. Even Jesus could have yeah. told Pilate the truth. He could have fought what was going on just for himself personally. If I could arm a bunch of zealots with swords to go out and take the, the kingdom by force as we misread that passage in Matthew. Instead, Jesus is teaching us how to live in the power of love, which is so much stronger than anything mm -hmm. we can wield in our own effort or our hands or whatever. And that's not to say, hey, we're not telling you not to vote in the next election and vote for whoever yeah. you think's best for the country. This is not about that. This is for putting your hopes in a political system to advance the kingdom of God in the world or to mitigate your fear that the mm -hmm. world's going against you, which only creates even a bigger mission field of people that can be loved into God's reality. But they're not hearing it now because the white Christian nationalism has so disfigured the God of the Bible that he's no longer a compelling figure, a desire to know him for the people who are caught up in their religious view of God and trying to keep on God's good side so they can get into heaven. There's some kind of answer for them there. But for the rest of the world, there's not. Mm -hmm. And I find it, I find the passages interesting of Jesus, you know, sitting down at the right hand of the Father until he makes all enemies subdued under his feet. That that's his job, that he's going to do that because we don't do it well. We don't take on enemies without destroying people. Yeah. Jesus does in a way that can invite people into his fullness, invite people into his life. And he will, he'll get the last word on everything. First Peter three says in the message, everyone and everything he'll get the last because he will, we don't have to, we can live in as broken. Look at the early Christians. They lived in the Roman empire that was openly hostile to them among a religious form of Judaism that was hostile to them. And they thrived in the life of Jesus. They didn't take the reins of power. They didn't. They just put their hopes in him and what was true and what was loving. And mm -hmm. I love that I, I have moved. That's an arc of my journey from growing up and even having political ambitions as a young man and what we do and then have ended up over here. Not because I got I lost so much and got frustrated, but because God opened a better door. And learning to live loved and learning to love others in a world was so much more effective than having people fear me mm. or fear my power. And I'm afraid Christianity, this Christian nationalism has bought into the fear of our power and makes Christ less Christ-like and makes us less Christ-like in the world. I mean, Christ's reputation. I don't mean him less Christ-like. Yeah. I, I hope people take a long stop and look. Am I am I being motivated out of fear and vengeance? Or am I finding my wholeheartedness in the love of God and his love for me that can take me through any circumstance, even if the whole government collapses and turns hostile? If the government collapses right now, it's it's the people on the right that are more talking bullets than ballots these days and insurrection yeah. talk. That's that's where it comes from. It's people that would claim the God we know, just like going through the, the museum. There's That's separating Christianity too. There were more advocates for slavery that thought they were following Jesus than the abolition, abolitionists who were saying, no, this is not godly at all. It's completely foreign to God to own another human being. And those that are saying today, it's completely foreign to love God and not work for an equitable society for everyone, not just for Christians. 
and not just for white Christians. But boy, it's, it's not a popular message today. This is how we call the herd here at The God Journey. <laughs> Thank you for traveling with us today on The God Journey. You can join this conversation by visiting thegodjourney.com. 